when we initially spoke, your company was Layer CI. It has rebranded to Web App since then, and you guys have also launched a new product. If you could tell us about it, that'd be awesome. What are some of the new changes? Please. So, Layer CI. The idea was basically very quickly make uh, computers, like very quickly make virtual machines, so that people can run their tests in. And what we found was that people particularly liked using Layer CI for end-to-end uh, -end tests. So, uh, you know, you want to start your your full stack web apps. You want to start your front end, your back end, your database, uh, all of the other dependencies you need. And then you want to run something like Playwright or Cypress and basically uh, automate a browser to click around. So we had a lot of pull from our customers in the direction of end-to-end -end tests. And we also had a lot of pull from customers building web apps because uh, you know mobile apps and things, there's already uh, dedicated build tools for them. Uh, but web apps uh, had a hard time just making things fast. And so uh, we realized we could layer on other features uh, to the same interface. So if you can build a, an environment very quickly for these tests, you can also build a staging environment very quickly. So you can uh, make an internet link, you can share it with the QA team or your, like another developer if you want to share your feature. And you can say, you know, click my new feature dot demo dot my company dot com. And then your coworker can uh, actually try your feature and see that it works and not just look at the code when they're giving you feedback. So that was kind of the, the move towards webapp.io was we can add uh, this preview environments feature that gets rid of uh, staging servers. Right. And was that something you guys were always thinking of when building the product? If that transition would occur, or is that something you just noticed from customers talking to people that use the app? Yeah, so when, when we started, um, the only core thing we knew that we wanted to build was the layer file, which is the configuration file that defines one of these environments. And you know, we knew that there was lots of things we could build with them because they're so general. Um, and so we were, you know, we wanted to make sure when we were talking to users that we we're building something that people actually wanted. And so right. we, we, we had this kind of like Kanban board of like all of the potential verticals. It was like, you know, we can, we can build environments for different operating systems. Like we can support Mac and Windows and other operating systems than Linux, which, you know, most people run their tests in. Or, gotcha. you know, we can. Uh, do deployment. There's a company called Harness that does like continuous deployments, and we were like, "Oh, maybe we can go in that direction." But the the thing that people cared the most about was making test environments. So, particularly making, you know, very quickly making a new copy of their environment or many copies, and then running in ten tests, and then, you know, from there, people asked for the ability to uh, enter environments. So it's like if a test fails, I want to be able to investigate the environment to see what happened. Um, so we have like a, a feature where you can like open a terminal and after the environment has failed, you can uh, play around with it. That's and then awesome. we realized that you can just view the website, you know, since we already have the ability to wake up the environment, then, you know, you can replace staging servers too. So when it comes to building web apps, other kinds of products, two questions, how can people try your tool? And then when do you think they should try your tool? Is this something that could be used by a beginner, an intermediate level. Maybe you can speak to where people should start and then when they should start incorporating other kinds of tools, products, features, 
Because I feel like a lot of this stuff is, it, in the very early days, it can be very overwhelming to someone who wants to start. Yeah, I think... So we, we work with some coding boot camps um, to, to host the, the students' projects and things like that and set up, you know, to help the user or help the students uh, set up continuous deployment and these other things so that every time they make a new change, they get a, their internet visible link updates without them needing to do all of the op stuff. Um, and I think if you're getting started and you don't want to deal with all the op stuff and all of the complexities of deploying a web app, um, if you start with like a, a popular template, you know, you can get the configuration to just work out of the box. So a really popular one for um, front-end web apps is called Create React App. So if you use Create React App, you'll get kind of a directory structure on your computer that lots of people understand. And you'll be able to deploy it to one of like 10 different uh, platforms for hosting web apps alongside us uh, without any configuration, really. OK, that's cool. What would you say has been the biggest win so far? Because WebApp is still a young company, but has made a lot of progress. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just making tests faster uh, has been the the thing our users like the most. And like, I guess from our users' perspective, imagine you've been hired onto a team. They say we automatically test uh, all of the things you push, and then you push your first feature, and you have to wait ninety minutes. And then, right, like it randomly fails, and you have to wait another ninety minutes. Like it's just a really painful experience. There's only so many ninety minutes in a workday, right? And right. all the all the while, like your boss is telling you, if this isn't deployed this week, then you know it's going to push the deadlines back or whatever. So you're kind of stuck between this like ninety minute or whatever sixty ninety minute loop time and getting getting the promotion you want, and. You know, when people install us, that 90 minutes goes to like five minutes. And then the developers are significantly happier. And, you know, the boss is happy that you're hitting your deadlines. You're happy that you don't have to wait. And uh, the ops people are happy because they don't have to maintain lots of esoteric custom stuff because our configuration is very uh, simple to maintain. Gotcha. Okay. So that begs the question what would you say is the most misunderstood thing about being a developer working in that kind of environment? those types of roles? I mean, I think a lot of people assume that like, once I make it to industry, it'll, it'll be fine. You know, it's like, I just need to graduate and then I'll go to industry and it'll be fine. But in, in industry, there's like this growing movement to, uh, to measure things. I mean, it's obviously like uh, bosses try not to micromanage, but there's this, uh, there's like a few sets of metrics. Uh, the big one's called Dora. And Dora is just like a, a set of numbers that Google released that you can measure with your team. And there's like tools you can install. Like one of our uh, friends at Y Combinator uh, made a company called Haystack that is uh, pretty popular for this. But teams like, like, you know, managers actually install these tools and they'll measure everyone's like how often they deploy, how many new features they make, how often they're introducing bugs, stuff like that. So even once you make it to industry, it's not just going to be like, you know, you you make one change a week, and people are happy with that necessarily. Right. It, embarrassing question, but does Dora stand for something? Is that an acronym? Um, it's like an acronym for the things they measure. But 
yeah, it's like a deployment frequency. Um, you know, there's just like the the Google paper outlines the the four words. And okay, what okay, they, I got gotcha. how you measure them. Yeah. All right. In some abstract sense, then, is a web web app trying to bring back kind of the altruism of development, where it's not about gamifying Dora or these other metric systems, and it's really about okay, how much can you actually build? How much can you actually produce that is worthwhile for customers and for clients? So we, I mean, if you're using Dora, like if you install us, you'll still get better Dora metrics. Like that's one of the reasons people care about this in the first place. So I, th- I think Dora is like sure. a good proxy for teams to actually measure what's blocking their developers. Because as, as an engineering manager, you're not always very technical and you're not always pushing code. So if you ask a developer, like, why did this typo fix take six hours and the the developer might be like oh you know the ci pipeline is very slow um right ci pipeline here meaning like the automated tests that run when you make a change and as a manager it might be hard to to empathize with that but when you actually see the metrics and you see like oh it takes an hour and a half after every change and for this developer they had to retry twice because it was flaky and each time they retried it took an hour and a half like that's right yeah, I think Dora is good for that. But our, like our perspective is that like the the obvious blockers to developer productivity are usually obvious to the developers. So if you just ask a developer what would make you develop faster, like for web apps, like ninety five percent of the time it's going to be make the test faster, make the test have less flakiness, add more tests so that we know when we've broken things, and the, like if you can do all of those things, then the whole team will develop significantly faster. Okay. I mean, that then that begs the question, why haven't people been doing this? I mean, I'm sure web app isn't the first company, but it certainly does seem like one of the best options, given what's out there, given what you guys have accomplished. Like, what what is your opinion of the market? Yeah, so I mean, there's, I guess there's many ways to answer that. Historically, the the main CI company was Circle CI. They were the, you know, the the popular uh, Silicon Valley one. There was one called Travis that was like uh, also very popular and like one of the original ones. And uh, they acted sort of like DigitalOcean. So, like you get your test environments, but it's not optimized. It's like, you know, you get a VM, a virtual machine, like a, a virtual computer in the cloud. You get your uh, like file system, like you can save files and load them across things and their secrets. Um, but they're not differentiated. They're all just like every time I push, like make a new thing from scratch and then run this script I specify. The latest one is GitHub Actions. So like GitHub Actions and uh, GitLab, or sorry, GitHub and GitLab, the places you push code to have both made these very general. Uh, CI systems as well. So GitLabs is called right. GitLab CI. GitHub, GitHub's is called GitHub Actions. Um, but they're yeah, it's just like workflow based. It's like when I push, run the script. So the the insight we had was that you can basically version, like you, you can take snapshots of environments as they build. So um, if you have a change and you want to run a build script that's you know like start the back end start the front end start the database load fake data into the database got it um, you know there's like there's like effectively 20 minutes of setup for 5 minutes of actual testing 
as long as you don't change the setup script, you should be able to just save the state after you ran the setup script last time. And then on a subsequent push, like just load that state, right? It's like uh, if you hibernate a laptop, then make like a disk image of the laptop and wake up the second copy. You can effectively like clone a laptop so that each each laptop is running the same processes and you know you, it's it's instant. Um, so the insight for us was just like since there's so much expensive setup time every time you want to make a new environment for these like full stack environments, then if it automatically snapshots it and automatically figures out the right snapshot to load, then you can skip a lot of the uh, the slowdown. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. I think. I'm not too well-versed in this stuff. So I, pre- I appreciate you giving the breakdown. Um, I'm sure some of the listeners will have understood every word you said. But that's very interesting. I mean, do you think there is still a market for these kinds of products? Or like you said, do you think these bigger players are going to be introducing smaller applications under their umbrella of currently existing products? I mean, I don't, I don't think it makes sense for the big players to compete with every single like uh, developer tool. Like, you know, if, if GitHub Actions uh, spreads into like Retool and us and, you know, like the, the mobile CI and whatever, like it's just going to become this like bloated mess of like, it's not really clear who it's for. Like GitHub Actions right now is very general. You can use it for mobile apps, for web apps, for got it whatever it's it's just like uh it's like a swiss army knife and only once you start uh, scaling your developer team and adding more and more tests does it start falling apart uh, and that's you know that's when users usually switch to us as they've started with github actions and uh, it's gotten too slow but i think the the core movement in these like in our industry at least is is like deconstruction the you know the anderson right. horowitz essay it's like CI 10 years ago, 15 years ago was this kind of new thing that people were getting started with. But now everyone knows what CI is and it's it's less a question of setting up CI and it's more a question of setting up the appropriate CI. Yeah, even tools like uh, Vercel or Heroku are CI with CI in quotes in that every time you push, they run a build script and uh, set up something. But like, you know, they're not billing themselves as a GitHub Actions competitor. They're just the tool you reach for when you want to do that particular thing. Got it. Okay. We were speaking before the call as well about your background in AI, U of T. This still blows me away, man. You did a triple major. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was math, statistics, computer science. And you did in four years. I did indeed. Jesus. That's insane. Okay. So you are pretty well-versed in this stuff. So there's companies like OpenAI. They release things like Dolly, ChatGPT. There's things like Google Brain. We're going to jump into all of this stuff, but do you have an opinion on some of the more recent products? For example, OpenAI has released, particularly Dolly 2, particularly ChatGPT. Yeah. Um, so I think for ChatGPT, it's both overhyped and underhyped, if that makes sense. Like, okay. I think a lot of people, 
like a lot of people in the Twitterverse or like the the tech, you know, tech <laughs> Twitter or whatever. Like everyone uses ChatGPT, and they're like, "Oh, it's going to end Google. It's going to end, you know, it's going to end the world as we know it. Like no one's going to make content for the internet anymore. Right? <laughs> like no one has to come up for ideas for their startups anymore." But uh, you know, I think from that perspective, it's overhyped. Like I think it's not going to take over Google. Uh, right. <laughs> particularly because it's expensive. Like each query takes like on the order of cents when Google searches. Like if you know if Google searches cost as much as that, uh, Google would run out of money in like a day. Um. So yeah, from that perspective, like twi- tech Twitter is a, a little overzealous about this tool. Um. But I think like average people, like if you just talk to your your families at Christmas, and you you show them this tool, like they'll just have fun with it. They'll be like, wow, this is so amazing. Like right. this is way better than Siri or, you know, the traditional AIs that they worked with. Um, so I've been having fun just like, uh, I wanted to make like a, a game over Christmas, like uh, do a little hackathon and make a game. And I, I asked it for like, give me 10 couch co-op game suggestions that look like Jackbox games. And it did pretty well with that. You know, it gave it gave some reasonable sounding games. I don't think like a lot of them wouldn't be fun, but I think it's a lot to ask an AI to understand what makes a fun game. Um, but certainly the kernel was there, and I think for that sort of thing, like it's great. Like you, uh, you know, if you want like a list of trivia questions, or like uh, you want to make a game, or you want to make a poem, or something, it's it's like extremely powerful at that sort of thing. Where do you personally see the limitations of a product like that? Yeah, so I'm uh, like I'm often not in front of my computer. Like I have like calls, or I'm I'm out getting coffee with people and things. And so, like uh, in the the week it was released, I tried a lot to get it to program for me. I was like, well, if it's such a good programmer, you know, everyone says it's going to replace programmer jobs. In the Let's Twitter put it verse. to the test. Yeah, I was like, I'm lazy. I don't want to actually do programming <laughs> if this AI can do it all for me. And so I, you know, I was like, uh, hey, OpenAI, make a, you know, like, read this technical document. Like, I'll just paste a technical document and make an implementation in Go that handles everything. And, like, I was impressed at how plausible it sounded. Like, the, the answers it gave to programming questions were, like, you know, like, they, they looked right at a glance. Like, if you're, like, far from the screen and... You saw it. You're like, well, that that's probably right. Um, but my experience is that like the the current problem with language models is they don't actually understand anything. They're just like regurgitating huge amounts of data, and so like like obvious problems exist in the code, and they're buried deep in the implementation. And it's only once you run it and try to make tests for it that you realize that there's some fundamental right. flaw with the way it's doing things. It kind of remi- what you said there kind of reminded me of the Joe Rogan podcast with uh, Mark Andreessen, where he talked about that, like there was that Google engineer that said the AI is sentient, and then Andreessen claimed that, like, look, this thing is very capable of telling you that it's alive. It is also very capable of telling you that it, it is not alive. It doesn't care, right? And I think that's kind of what's going on here as well in different respects, where. Like you said, it doesn't understand what a a cloudy day is or a sunny day is, but it does have the data 
to regurgitate it if you do ask for it. Is my non-math, non-computer science, non-statistic brain understanding that correctly? Yeah, basically. I mean, like, I'm not a cognitive scientist, so I can't tell you exactly what sentience looks like in a, in a neural network. Like, there's a whole field of study of, like, what's the difference between our brains, like, as we're having this conversation and chat with GPT. But from a machine learning perspective, like, the difference is that we actually understand the state of the world and we can reason about it. So if you ask chat that open AI, you know, how much paper would it take to cover Africa? Like chat that open AI would be like, Africa is a country. It doesn't have, you know, I, I tried this. I was just like, like that's, that's like a question like a fifth grader could answer, right? It's like, you just, you just like roughly cut a piece of paper and you roughly measure it and you can give an approximation. But chat that open AI was adamant that you couldn't cover Africa with paper. But it's just like, you know, we, we're denizens of this world. So we understand like how to manipulate objects and things like that. So it's not right. inconceivable that you could make a piece of paper that big. Um, but the AI models, like if it's not something that anyone has ever talked about on the internet before, it's very difficult for them to understand that. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, do you have an opinion on, you hinted it there a little bit, but do you have an opinion on how people are kind of confusing the intelligence of the system with consciousness. Like I, I know you're look, I know you're not a cognitive scientist, but clearly you're well versed in this stuff. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like it's the same problem with self-driving cars. Like people that are building self-driving cars aren't trying to make a self-driving car that drives like a human. Like humans suck at driving, but they're also uh, capable of reasoning about the world. So, you know, like you'll you'll never hear of like human driver drove full speed into an overturned box truck because they thought it was the sky or something. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Like humans just like understand that sometimes objects are on the highway and you need to slow down if it's something you don't understand. AIs are like, I will just segment the horizon and oh there's a weird white patch in the horizon. Whatever. Um and you can like train a neural network not to do that. Like you can you can add that as another case in the list of neural network cases. But that's like the that's the reason you can't get self-driving anywhere outside of San Francisco right now is just that the world's a really big place with a lot of weird esoteric rules and bridges that can only be crossed by a few cars at a time. And so like an actual general self-driving car is just like millions and millions of cases from every country in the world versus a human driver like if someone learns to drive in Canada and they go to Europe and drive around. Yeah, Italy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they'll figure it out. You know, it's like the rules are very different. The street signs are in a different language, but like you generally can still drive in another country. You'll just drive slower if you're uncertain about things. And, you know, you, you can reason about the world and still figure out other driving systems. Versus a neural network, it's like if you take a Waymo car and put it in Rome, it's not, it's not going to do very well. <laughs> or if you take a Waymo car and put it in a blizzard, in the prairies, it's also not going to do very well. So, are the companies themselves like aware of those limitations? I mean, that sounds silly, but there seems to be this crazy optimism around some of these tools. When, like you say, in reality, look, if we narrow it to very specific use cases, they can be successful, but put them in quote unquote the real world where there's more variables, you know i.e. a self-driving car in Vietnam, for instance, that's probably not going to work. I mean, it'll, 
it'll work the same way that Waymo works in San Francisco, which is to say you could train it on all of the various local driving conditions and make sure that like if a monsoon hits or something, it I don't know if that's ignorant. Is there monsoons in Vietnam or whatever? Like if there's some extreme so. weather extreme, extreme weather, weather. <laughs> and you know, it's like it's San Francisco or it's not San Francisco, it's somewhere that actually has weather. Like what is the self-driving car gonna do? Like is it gonna hydroplane? Is it gonna pull off to the side of the road? What if right. it's on a highway and it can't pull over? Whatever. So they they can like programmatically do all of those cases for any country. Um but yeah, like when I was uh, working with self-driving cars like five years ago, there was the two camps. And the two camps were basically like Cruz, Waymo, and Zooks, and like a few other companies. Zooks was the one bought by Amazon. Um, they were just like, I'm going to do all the cases. Like I'm just going to, as things, like as we drive on the highway and something wrong happens, we're just going to add that to the code. And then like people will still die in these cars eventually. But like they'll die less often than human drivers was was kind of one camp. It was like we can yeah. make something that solves enough cases that it'll be safer than a human driver. And then once it's safer than a human driver, like we're not gonna feel too bad that someone died in it from some like freak accident that we didn't program as a case because like, you know, over enough trips, like someone was gonna die anyways if they were the driver. So it's like ethically that was the, the basis for like Cruise and Waymo and stuff. And uh, like they haven't killed anyone, as far as I could tell. So even even better there. They've been taking it very slow, but you know, as they want to make money, they'll they'll have to uh, you know take the training wheels off. And the second camp was kind of what Tesla wants to do, and it was just like we'll get so much training data and make the AI sentient, you know, effectively. Like we'll just like unsupervised throw the entire world's roads at this car and it's going to figure out how to drive anywhere in the world from right you know just the volume of data and we're going to use like uh, like unsupervised learning or whatever like we're not going to tell it what to do we're just going to like tell it not to crash and it'll figure it out and at the time like i was very skeptical that that approach would work like the you know monitor every trip in the world throw all the data at it it'll figure it out because you know they aren't sentient it's like you can't make a neural network sentient with current tools. Gradient descent doesn't result in a sentient AI. It just results in an AI that answers questions like you wanted to. Um, and so like you end up with problems like, you know, uh, like the Uber or Tesla trying to make their general AIs programs. They're way behind Waymo or Cruise now. Uh, right. Despite having worked for the same amount of time. And that's because that approach is just very difficult. And until they have the magical sentience box that they can plug into their neural network that understands the state of the world. It's going to be very hard to, to productionize that. When you were working on autonomous vehicles, what was your opinion on ethical dilemmas? Like a car is driving down the street and it needs to swerve out the way to avoid hitting someone. If it hits that person, it'll kill them. But if they swerve out of the way, it's going to kill the driver. So there are these like complicated ethical dilemmas that can blossom because, I mean, it, it, it's just variables of the world. That's how the world works, unfortunately. Like, did you think about that stuff? Or I hope that question makes sense. You can just ask me what I think of the trolley problem. That might have. <laughs> oh, is it the tr- is is that the way? Okay, all right. Let me ask it one more time. <laughs> 
No, he has going over time. I told you, man, I told you I'm not that smart. All right. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Have, um, have you heard of the trolley problem? Well, I think I have if I, you know, explained it in like 10 times as many words. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> okay. When it comes to ethical dilemmas like the trolley problem, for instance, how did you think about that? Yeah, so I think the uh, the self driving car should drift and hit both camps of people. That way, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean like that. That's all it possible to answer. Right? Like everyone has different ethical systems. Ironically, of the degrees I did, only the math degree required me to take an ethics course. Um, really? Okay, that's yeah, interesting. Computer science can do no harm to the to the world. Certainly not <laughs> by uh, you know influencing discourse online or anything like that. Anyways. Um, yeah, so like the the usual situation is like the self driving car is like going towards a pedestrian crosswalk. Like some mother with like a stroller jumps in front of the car, and you can choose to either like crash the car or like hit the mother or something. I feel like the premise of like all of those is very flawed because most of the time, crashing a car isn't going to cause any problems. Like cars are incredibly safe. Even if you crash a car at highway speeds, it's usually survivable. Um, as long as you don't do like a head-on collision or something, or you like fly off a bridge or or whatever, like right. like modern cars, like ones made in the past twenty years, are just like incredibly safe. So, like ethically, just crashing the car is usually the right thing to do because a it's cheaper than like paying like some life insurance claim or something, and b like you'll survive most of the time, and you can you can like I don't know, you could contrive of some scenario where. The, there's like two self-driving cars approaching each other and one has three passengers and one has one passenger and it's a highway with only one lane and both brake lines have been cut or something. And gotcha. You know, you know, what are you going to choose to jump off the bridge or not? Like the one passenger car should jump off the bridge, whatever. Like you can, you can make some contrived scenario, but I, I understand the hypotheticals can become so hypothetical that they just don't make sense anymore. I got you. Yeah. But I mean, like at that point, the the problem is that self-driving cars and humans have reaction time, right? It's like if you're in a scenario, you basically just do a gut instinct thing. Like if it's a one, like usually you have like one second to react or something, like 500 milliseconds to react. Like you're right. not going to do all the logical basis of like the utilitarian <laughs> fundamentals of, you know, like whether three people are more important than one or whatever. You're just going to choose some action. Sometimes it'll be the right action. Sometimes it'll be the wrong action. But as long as it's like some action, then it's better than just crashing into things head on. I gotcha. Exactly. Do you have any opinion on how companies like Google versus OpenAI are approaching these problems? Because I do find the branding behind OpenAI is a little more altruistic or they try to push it that way. But at the end of the day, perhaps if you look behind the hood, the way they're working on these problems is actually remarkably similar. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, that, like the the actual day to day work that these teams are doing is very similar across the big companies, like the the Alexa team, the like the ChatGPT team, Google Brain. They're they're all, you know, using things like TensorFlow or like. Uh, you know, Keras or like all these like AI frameworks, they're all like training on GPUs or TPUs. Um, Google rents its TPUs to other companies now. So, uh, you know, companies like Cohere AI, 
uh, from Toronto also do uh, TPUs using like Google Cloud. But you know, like the 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 finishing touch is like the the thing that people notice, right? So like Google uses its language models to result in better Google searches. But Google's big constraint is money. Like Google does like a billion Google searches a day or something. So if a Google search costs one dollar, like Google's actually just gonna run out of money. Right. Versus like OpenAI, like OpenAI is like effectively a not for profit. They're not I don't think they're officially a not for profit, but like they're they're bankrolled by people that just wanna advance AI, like Sam Altman. And like they just want to make flashy demos that makes people think about what can be done with AI. Like Google right. could have built something like chat the OpenAI dot um like like years ago, probably. Like Google Brain has Hinton and has like a lot of resources and has a lot of TPUs. But they just like Google as a for profit company doesn't have interest in making flashy demos. They want to make incremental improvements on products used by billions of dollars. Uh, or sorry, billions right. of people like Android or Google search. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Conspiracy theory question. Do you think these companies are hiding something from us? Do you think that they're working on these big, crazy projects with governments, let's say, and they aren't releasing them to the public? There's more than meets the eye with some of this stuff. I mean, it's like, it's, a, it's hard to say, but I think historically governments are better at like applied math than they are at machine learning. Like machine learning is very creative and very like, you know, it's it's more like traditional academia than it is like cryptography. So I don't think the NSA has like a data center full of TPUs or something. And if they did, it would very quickly, <laughs> like it would very quickly fall behind the industry because, you know, even last year, like Tesla made their new hardware, uh, Google made their new hardware. Like private companies are just constantly pushing the envelope of AI hardware, and like it's developing right. so quickly. And government contracts run on like five-year timescales or something. So maybe I'm sure there's some like AI hardware at some government data center somewhere, like uh, AWS GovCloud or something. But that, I don't think there's like large models that are being trained that no one's ever seen before. Sure, I got gotcha. you. That makes sense. Conspiracy theory that uh, might be true, though, is that uh, like private private companies are probably using these models to like affect online discourse. Um, say you're, you know, say you're making like a uh, an app or something, and mm-hmm. uh, you have a competitive competing app. Like, say you're like Clash of Clans versus like another one of those online apps or something, right? Like it's very easy using language models to make negative comments in the other person's subreddit, and like make like make flame wars in in other people's subreddits or things like that. So I think if anyone's using like neural networks for for bad, it's probably people using them for PR and or advertising, where they just kind of like steer online discourse using automated comments, similar to like yeah. platforms or whatever. I think people would be shocked if they realized how many bots there are on the internet. Like how many human-like bots that even the platforms can't detect. Like, it's it's incredibly difficult to uh, differentiate a human and a bot. There, there's an anecdote here. Like, um, there was like a, a national park in the U.S. that was like trying to make uh, garbage cans that bears couldn't get into. And and there's like a famous quote 
by the the person designing the garbage cans. Like a reporter asked them, like, how come it's so hard to make like a garbage can that bears can't get into? And the person says, uh, there's considerable overlap between the dumbest tourist and the smartest bear. <laughs> 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 The, the same sort of Fair thing enough. is true with, with online discourse. Like, uh, you know, like a 13-year-old making their first Reddit comment is probably not going to be very nuanced and will probably, you know, not be very upvoted. And it's not very hard to make bots that sound better than a 13-year-old and seem very eloquent. Like, ask, um, ask chat at OpenAI to respond to a comment in a negative way or something. I mean, I think they've gated it so that it doesn't, it doesn't want to be too mean to people or whatever or mess up discourse too much. But uh, like if you're Russia or something and you, you make, I mean, it's probably not Russia. It's probably companies again. But um, like it's very easy to make like top level comments that just steer the conversation away from what's profitable for your competitor and <laughs> towards, you know, some, some yeah, irrelevant tangent or something like that. You're right. I mean, who knows? Maybe we got some bots listening to the homeroom podcast you never know i I think this will become especially funny when like sites start bragging about having like 10 billion active users and things like that like (laughs) like in the next twitter (laughs) like in the next 20 years there's going to be sites that have more active users than there are humans and it's going to cause a lot of questions about like right pigeon pigeonhole like there's there's more users than there's humans so like which of us is real and things like that I mean, I think that's already happened. Like, look at TikTok. Do you know what offhand what TikTok's like daily actives is? No, but what I mean is if you compare if you compare TikTok to, for example, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, the amount of likes and the amount of views that you'll actually get on your content is remarkably higher. Like people will get a hundred million views on a single video. And for someone like me that comes from, you know, a sales and marketing background, to me, that just screams to the user, hey, use our platform. You're going to get a bigger dopamine rush from using our platform because you're going to get more views, more likes, more comments. You're going to feel better. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for TikTok's uh, 1 billionth, or sorry, 10 billionth user. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that how many users they have right now? Like 9 billion or something? I, I just Googled and it says they have uh, 1 billion monthly active users. So, you know, they claim at least that one tenth of every human, like one out of 10 humans logs into TikTok <laughs> every month. Yeah, that's quite high. It already seems out, like outrageously high given there's like a bunch of babies <laughs> and a bunch of like 70 year olds. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Knows? Yeah. Do you have any other opinions on. I mean, more more creative kinds of applications of AI, whether that be Jukebox, whether that be Dolly 2. Um, do you see that, again, might be a little conspiratorial to say, but like, do you see that impacting the traditional industry that is graphic design, the arts, music production, all those kinds of things? I mean, I, I see it impacting them, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a bad thing long-term. Do you, do you know the story of like... Um, like photograph killed realism. Uh, yeah, no, no, I don't tell it. So if you look at like, you know, like the, the 19th century masters, like the, the really good painting, the painters, 
mm-hmm. like the you know the Renaissance painters and things like that, up to like the 1850s, people were striving to make scenes that looked like the real world. Like they right. they'd make landscapes, they'd make portraits of people. You know, like the Mona Lisa. Like everything was, you know, trying to be lifelike and like trying to be photorealistic. And then like the photography process came out and suddenly it became easy to like make a framed picture like the one behind me that right you know was just a natural scene like this picture has like a lot of different elements and has like lighting and has leaves on sand and there's like you know like it'd be very hard to paint this but you can just now you can just take a digital like uh like a smartphone and you can use like a commercial printer and you have that scene and right. and so what happened is like you know, the 1900s rolled around and people stopped having fun building, uh, or sorry, stopped having fun painting photorealistic things. And that's, right. that's when all of these other art styles came out, like, um, you know, like Rothko and like all of these other painters, like Picasso, they, they, they weren't making natural scenes. They were making things that made you think. Uh, I really like Banksy and like Banksy does not make natural scenes. Banksy just plays with art as a medium to make you know, like cultural takes on things, but the, you know, it's, it's arguable that art is more fun now than it was when everyone was just trying to make sheep look exactly like sheep or whatever, like the, the advent of the photograph, like let art move on from the pursuit of photorealism. Understood. Not to to belabor the point, but I think like AI is going to do the same thing now. It's like, you know, people focus a lot on style right now. It's like, what is your style? And it's like, you know, do, right. you, have the, do you have the the Salvador Dali style, or do you have, you know, the Calvin and Hobbes style, or do you have the Disney style? Whatever. Like, people care a lot about style. I think ultimately, like, style is very hard to to make unique. Like, you can come up with a style, but that doesn't necessarily like, you know, it's that's something that AIs can do very well. And that'll move art back towards like, you know, the, the content of the art and like what it makes you think of and not just the style. And you'll also be able to come up with a lot more styles because all you need to do is make one and you can generate images in that style or whatever. So, right. That's really interesting. No, I I never thought about that. Like it's going to push art to, like you said, from foot, from landscapes to abstract imagery from, you know, Hard, hard set styles to different kinds of variations. It's almost going to push creativity more, in a sense. Yeah, and I don't know, like style's fun, right? Like The Incredibles is like a fun movie because it has this like unique art style. And yeah. if it was easier for like YouTube creators to be able to make art styles like that, then it'd be easier for them to make things like The Incredibles. And I think like there's a lot of creative YouTube creators that just don't have the millions of hours it takes to make something like Incredibles. Right, and if you if you give them the tools to make that, then there'll be an explosion in that form of art that wasn't accessible to people before. Gotcha. That's super interesting. Okay, another another question I'm curious about is where you see AI applying in other industries. For example, like finance. There's quant hedge funds out there. Two Sigma, Renaissance Technologies being one of the earliest ones. But how do you kind of see those things permeating? other industries. Yeah, I mean, like AI will have lots of applications and a lot of B2B stuff. I, I think like 
it's already being used a lot in quant. And I mean, like, you know, machine learning is this like very old field, actually. And like quant has been using effectively machine learning, things like, uh, you know, linear, um, linear regression were effectively for that sort of data. So like people fitting a trend line onto like financial data, things like that. Right. Has been going on for like a hundred years now. Like that was like one of the first things anyone did when they saw revenue numbers. It's like trying to fit a curve over it to guess next month's revenue based on last month's revenue. So, you know, like it's just incremental in finance. It's like it starts with fitting curves, then there's a machine learning, then you take news feeds into account, then you take and you just get more and more data, but every incremental thing gives you less and less alpha. Like, you know, right. fitting a curve gives you a lot of alpha. And now like adding TikTok video comments to your giant model or something <laughs> gives you a little bit of alpha, but it's like it's like maybe like cents per day or something. And you right. try to get as much alpha as you can. But I think practically like the models are getting better, but the alpha is getting smaller. Let me ask that last question in a different way. What application are you most excited about AI being used for? That's a that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think the the one I would really like is just general self driving. Like, I think once they figure out self driving, everything will be a lot nicer because just parking downtown is miserable. Like. Right. <laughs> imagine you just have like a taxi that costs very little. Like imagine when Waymo's worldwide and like you, you're somewhere you need to use a car and like you just press the button on your phone. There's like 50 cars in the block. Like a second later, a car pulls up in front of you and then it drives you to where you need to be. And then it circles the probabilistically best place for it to be circling or something like that. Like True. just street, street parking is this ridiculous institution, right? It's like there shouldn't be street parking. Like, <laughs> Street parking should just be like idling Waymos, and then <laughs> when you want to go somewhere, like it just comes pick you up. Uh, I think that's the thing I'm most excited about because I hate parking downtown. And do you, do like, you still live downtown in Toronto right now? Because I do. You got yeah. that last time we spoke. You got your apartment. I think. Um, yeah, I uh, I still live there. Oh, okay, okay, nice man. Um, actually, let me pick your brain on this. What do you think about city infrastructure? How do you think it's going to change or? remain the same given advances that we're seeing in self-driving for instance um <laughs> i mean i think there's like this this famous thing that there's like a famous twitter comment that like, got a lot of traction and it was like elon said we're gonna make hyperloop and everyone was like okay that's interesting interesting take on um on infrastructure and then elon was like but for now i'm just gonna make a tunnel to put Teslas in under Las Vegas or whatever. And everyone was like, still a little interesting, but like maybe not as unique of a take as as Hyperloop. And then and then Elon basically said, like, oh, um, with once we have full self-driving, like the cars will be able to stay very close to the other cars and go through these tunnels underground. And people are like, yes, continue. Like if you continue this train of thought for a few more years, you end up with subways. It's right. like <laughs> it's, you know. Like a lot of the urban infrastructure stuff has already been solved, like rapid transit. You know, if you if you just keep optimizing, like the most common route, and you optimize, like passenger density, you end up with like a high speed train or a subway. Like, right? You know, I think AI is going to do a lot less for urban infrastructure than people expect because, like AI, if you asked it to come up with the optimal transit system, would just tell you to make a subway most of the case. Like. Most times, taking a subway is faster than everyone having a car, having like a 30-lane highway or whatever. 
and you can get better density and, and things like that. Even in, I agree. Even in Toronto, man, when there's only where there's only two subway lines, I remember taking the uh, when I first moved to Toronto from High Park down to Union Station. And it was like it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was it was okay. I got there in a reasonable amount of time. So you're right. Like a lot of this infrastructure has already been created. Do you think there just needs to be more of it? Like the solution isn't reinventing the subway. The solution is just putting in more subway lines in Toronto. Well, I mean, I think you originally asked this in uh, in terms of AI, right? Like, you know, how is AI going to change this? I I think the the big difference between now and say like 30 years from now is that uh, trips will be integrated. So I don't know. Have you ever gone from like uh, SFO, like San Francisco airport to like downtown? Like with an Uber oh, or something? Yeah. Maybe five, six times. Yeah. And how much was the Uber? Was it like over under a hundred dollars? Oh, I mean, it was very expensive. I think like 60 bucks ish. Well, that's, that's pretty cheap. Usually I can't, I take I can't remember. I can't yes. remember, but it, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. I, I then, remember being like, what the fuck? So, <laughs> and that's a, that's a pretty close trip. So, um, you know, like back in the day, $100 was a lot of money to me. And like, you know, before we had revenue, before we had investors and things like that. And so I would take the BART. So I'd go to San Francisco, I'd take the BART to like downtown, and then I'd Uber from the BART station. And the Uber from the BART station to wherever I was going was like, 10, 20 bucks or something. And the BART was like right. five bucks or something. I forget exactly how much BART is. But in my defense, I did not know the BART existed when I paid for those Ubers. So, yeah, yeah but, like, me, you know, <laughs> but, but also, you had a smartphone app and you said, I want to go to that place. And the smartphone app plotted uh, a car centric trip, right? It was, uh, you know, it was like single modal, you could call it. Sure. It was like a car picks you up, the same car drops you off. But I think, like the the interesting trend in urban mobility would be like if you had self-driving cars or just like human drivers in an Uber or something. And you could connect kind of like the first chunk with a subway or something like that with the last chunk all seamlessly. And it just told you where to go. Like imagine you have like an AR app. There's like an arrow on the ground. It right. just tells you where to stand. A car picks you up. It drops you off at a, a station. You follow the AR app. It tells you where to go in the station, what train to get on. You get on a train. It tells you when to get off. Yeah. And then you go on another Uber. And then you can take, you know, any trip from anywhere to anywhere within like, you know, 100 miles as if That would be pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then depending on, you know, how many people are taking a trip, they could schedule more or less trains or things like that. Anyways, like I think there's a lot of interesting applications of like, merging like high density transport like trains or or subways with last mile transport like cars because a lot of people don't want to take the subway because they're like oh my house is 10 minutes from the subway station and it's cold outside or it's raining right. or whatever but you know they're happy to uber to the subway and then take the subway and then get off but right, right now it's just kind of like the logistics of that is is bad that's so interesting oh man okay i've, I've taken up way too much of your time I got so many more questions I want to ask you. Um, but let let let's leave it here. Um, let me ask you this, man: What is when it comes to the broad the broad world of technology? 
what is something that you're very, what's a use case that you're very optimistic about? And what is something that, for example, scares you? You think people are glossing over it a little too much and we should take the app, the use case or the application of it very seriously. Um, so the, I think the thing that scares me the most is climate change. Like everyone, I don't know. Like it's, it's easy to make money with internet apps, right? You make your app, you push your code, you make your money. Right. Um, much harder to make apps for like societal good. You know, there's like the tragedy of the commons thought experiment or whatever, where there's like a park and it's full of garbage and you could pick up the garbage from the park, but like your enjoyment of the park is like a tiny fraction of all of everyone's enjoyment of the park. So if you do that, you're doing a lot of effort for your small amount of enjoyment. So no one picks up the garbage and the garbage just piles right. up and then eventually no one enjoys the park. So that, you know, it's like in a city level, that's why we have like city governments that tax people to clean up parks. And that kind of solves the, uh, the tragedy of the commons. But like at the climate level, like countries are just very bad at collaborating with each other. So like it's, it's easy for, you know, like the, the US, for example, can say like, we have these climate targets, we're going to stop uh, or we're going to reduce our climate change. And then like individuals in the US will just buy goods from China, which uh, emits like a lot of pollution just to create goods that are then exported. So you, right. can, you can kind of like export your pollution to other countries and stay on your country's like climate goals or whatever. But yes. for, a, for a worldwide level, like that still matters a lot. So I think like, you know, just a lot of, a lot more of humanity's effort needs to be focused on these like climate problems because, you know, it's not going to be fun when there's a billion refugees. Like even the Ukraine war, it's what, like 20 million refugees? Like the, the climate problems have a, a like a 50x that humanitarian yeah. crisis. Imagine and, all the monthly active users on TikTok becoming <laughs> refugees and going somewhere. That's, that's crazy. Imagine if 150% of the world's population was refugees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that, I think that's the thing that, that scares me the most is the tragedy of the commons in technology. Like people are solving, like I'm making B2B SaaS because I need to make money. And you know, what, what am I going to do for any climate tech? There's no funding for that. There's no... You know, yeah. Or there's some funding, but there's like practically you can't break into tech or make your first company making some something that's going to solve climate change. No, I agree. Um, Absolutely. But everyone does that. And so like no one actually solves climate change. There's no like... True. Yep. Yeah. There needs to be an open AI for climate change, I guess, would be the, the answer. That's an excellent, that's an excellent point. Okay. Optimism. What are you optimistic about? What do you think is a use case that is actually like really good for the world, but no one's talking about it. I think I'm, uh, I mean, I, I'm optimistic that we can get rid of like a lot of the bullshit work that people have to do. Wait, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So think about like, you can say whatever the fuck you want, Colin. <laughs> yeah. Th think about like you, you have some white collar job, you're getting paid like, a little above minimum wage, uh, but you choose the job because it's comfortable. And the job is basically like copy files from one Excel spreadsheet to another or something. Right. And just like day in, day out, you're just like copying data and slightly modifying it and putting it from one spreadsheet into another. Mm -hmm. It's like at a, at a local level, 
Like it makes sense why you do that because you want the money. And from a company level, it makes sense why they'd hire you to do that because they want the spreadsheets to look a certain way or whatever. Right. But from a societal level, if like you know, if everyone had that job, then humanity wouldn't advance very much, right? Like you could argue that that's not very productive work on a societal level. Like, right. There's there's better things for people to be working on, like you know, serving food to people or things like that. Like you know, a uh, a waiter at a restaurant provides like joy and food to to people. Someone moving numbers around in a spreadsheet, like, does neither of those things. They're just slightly cajoling data or whatever, and they're probably paid better than the waiter, anyways. So it's like it, right. it could be argued that like if you just made it so that job didn't have to exist and you reallocated the resources to to waiters, then that would be a better a better thing for society. So I, I think like uh, just making those like really miserable tasks not have to exist anymore will like free a lot of people from just like extremely unfulfilling work. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Colin. You bro, you blew me away with some of your responses. That was awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time. We've been chatting for over an hour. This is huge. Yeah. My, uh, <laughs> my throat's getting a bit tired. I forgot to prepare <laughs> water before this, but it was really nice catching up. <laughs>